everybody. Welcome back to a special edition of the Mo News Podcast. I'm really excited about today's conversation with Rana Faruhar. She is a longtime foreign correspondent, foreign editor. She has a book out, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. Uh, we speak during a time of crisis in the Middle East, and we certainly get to that. Uh, but Rana has laid out sort of where the global system has broken down these past few decades, what broke it, and how we potentially fix it here. Uh, We talk at length about the role of China, the rise of BRICS, the U.S. role in the world uh, after dominating things post-World War II. Where do we find ourselves versus Europe, China? Uh, So we talk, again, crisis Middle East briefly, but then talk broad strokes about uh, globalization, where it's failed us, where it's succeeded, the impact it's had on our politics here in the U.S. I think you'll find it to be a very interesting conversation as we look at the world and figure out what's next. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one uh, and extra content over on our members-only Instagram account. It is a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism, and added plus is that extra content, uh, daily content over on the members-only Instagram feed. You can get it right now for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual membership. There's also a lifetime subscription if you're interested, you can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. Join the thousands, literally thousands, who have joined us at Mo News Premium. I think you'll really enjoy it. There's also a weekly Mo News quiz. All right, everyone, with that, here's today's conversation. So I'm so pleased to have Rana Faruhar joining us here uh, to talk about her newest book, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global War. She is a columnist and associate editor over the Financial Times, uh, an author of several books, Rana, we were just talking before we recorded here. I've had the pleasure of uh, having you on for analysis, wearing multiple hats during my time at Bloomberg Television, during my time at CBS News. So it's great to be chatting with you here. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get to this post-global war... World. World. Although, yes. you know... Sorry. That's an that's a understandable Freudian at the moment. <laughs> uh, that's exactly where I was going. You know, you're, you're talking in broad strokes in this book about... Um, how we got here and where we're going and actually some solutions. You know, it's not it's not all bad news. You're like, here are some things we could be doing at the same time as we record this. We should note, just because things are moving very quickly, on October 23rd, there is this escalating war between Israel and Hamas, fears that it could explode into a regional war. I feel like wearing your various hats through time as a foreign correspondent and editor, you've covered this region extensively. So I'd like to begin there as kind of that acute thing right now. What do you make so far? We're entering the third week here about what has transpired. So aside from just, you know, a shock, horror, all the feelings that everybody had when we heard the news, the thing that struck me was it's an interesting time when there's utter dysfunction within a government, as there was in the Israeli government at the time of this attack, that that's when you stage an attack. Now let's think about what's also going on in the U.S. government. We have no Speaker of the House. You know, uh, President Biden is, I think, doing a very good job walking a tightrope at this moment. But the bottom line is that the U.S. hands are tied around all kinds of funding issues, uh, support issues, really decisions that you might take about any number of important geopolitical events are 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 hamstrung at the moment. Now, if I were let's just say China, and I wanted to pick a time to invade Taiwan, not saying this is going to happen. But those are the sorts of things that I'm thinking about. The the fact that we are at a very vulnerable moment at a time, as I get into in the book, 
where we were already going towards a, I think, a generational, even kind of a half century pivot point Mm -hmm. in global politics and the global economy. So this flux point feels very worrisome to me. Yeah. And even, you know, we're talking about the Speaker of the House right now. But if you look at the last couple of years, whether it was the, you know, I'm being kind here, haphazard extra out of of Afghanistan or January 6th, you know, that certainly is something that uh, the Vladimir Putin's of the world, the Iran's of the world, et cetera, are are closely following and looking to take advantage of. It's such a gift. I mean, you know, let's step back for a minute and look at where the U.S. is. Aside from the crazy politics and that dysfunction, we're having an almost perfect cool down after a ton of fiscal stimulus. Okay, we have a housing inflation, but we're doing far better economically in terms of steady growth of still robust job market than any of our peers in the UK, Europe, Japan. Nobody thought things were going to be this bright at this moment. And we keep kind of scoring, as they would say, you know, in uh, soccer terms, an own goal. We're kicking it. Yeah, we're kicking it to our own goal. But I think that's an important point because we do make such a point here in the U.S. of inflation, inflation, inflation. But a year ago, we, you know, I think there were some assumptions, there were some estimates by banks saying we have a 100% chance of recession in 2023. Yeah, exactly. Everybody thought there was going to be a recession. A lot of people, and, you know, I'll even own up to me, you know, I thought there was going to be a much bigger market correction than there has been. We've had a pitch perfect recovery, and yet we keep screwing it up and, and creating vulnerabilities where they didn't have to be because of our politics. You know, if if we see another government shutdown in a few weeks, if we see a major kind of uh, debt and deficit issue in the fall, if, you know, we were to, you know, go bad on our debt, you know, God forbid. I mean, these are the sorts of things that actually cause a major market event. They don't have to happen. I mean, it's incredible that American politics has come to this point. So. In talking to the government officials and various sources that you speak to, um, watching the events unfold in in the Middle East, what are their biggest concerns right now um, as, again, they look at this alliance? Mm. You know, who would have thought a few years ago that Iran is supplying Russia with weapons? Well, right. And you're getting at something important. So there is this, you know, emerging alliance of autocrats. You have Iran, Russia, China kind of in this in this sort of new post-neoliberal world alliance. Now, Let's go back to last April. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, gave a very interesting speech sort of laying out and actually connecting the dots between Bidenomics and building back better and reindustrializing the U.S. with a new foreign policy for a post-neoliberal world in which, guess what, folks, we're not assuming anymore that China is going to somehow come seamlessly into the global trading system and we're all going to be happy and all boats are going to rise. We're not going to assume anymore that markets know best. And you know what? Wherever you you get your energy, even if it's from an autocrat, no problem. You know, we're not going to make those assumptions anymore. We're going to have a new system. So the administration has been looking out and, and I think anticipating this world. But frankly, Nobody can ever anticipate when a crisis point is going to come and exactly what form it's going to take. I still, I will say, despite what's happening in Israel right now and what's happening in Ukraine, I still think the big worry is China-Taiwan because that's the only thing that would be, wow, potentially intractable hot war between two superpowers. So honestly, that still worries me more. 
Yeah, I mean, despite, I think it's important context for people, despite the 24-7 coverage of the, of the current conflict, we're 20 months plus into the Ukraine-Russia war. We have certainly seen economic impact there globally in terms of food supply uh, and other aspects when it comes to energy. But what you're saying is, you know, despite what we're seeing right now in the Middle East, the global economic impact is what? Of the Middle East conflict yeah. at the moment, I would say it's maybe one of the many factors affecting the bond market. I mean, you know, you've seen crazy. I don't, you know, I don't know how wonky you want to get, but you know, the bond market's been up and down, up and down. Um, volatile stocks have been down. Clearly, the markets are like, ooh, we're a little worried. But this is only one reason they're worried. I yeah. mean, what, one of the, the the major reason is really still the Fed. What's it going to do? Are rates going to go higher for longer? Are they going to go sharply higher? Or are they maybe going to um, you know, retreat and we're going to be in a more dovish period? So that's kind of what's the, the larger context. But to right the now. average American, the impact is? Economically, none. Economically, none. Except for maybe the correction that you might feel. Whatever percentage yet another conflict in the world has on a stock market or a bond market correction. And, you know, let's be honest, 85% of the stocks and bonds in this country are owned by the top 10% of the population. So that's still a small percentage of the population. Actually, that's a theme I want to get to, and you certainly address it in your book in terms of the uh, economic inequality here. But one more thing as we transition yeah. here to the large conversation about globalization is I've been struck by the, the Biden tone, the Biden policy or the internationalist tone. He gave a speech last week saying, you know, the U.S. does have this role in the world. We do need to confront, as he asked Americans to support $106 billion to Ukraine, to Taiwan, to Israel, um, that we have to confront these dictators. And it seemed interesting. I mean, this has certainly been U.S. foreign policy for the most part since World War II. But given the retreats from Afghanistan and just kind of the rise of populism here, was interesting in your perspective on kind of that address and U.S. policy vis-a-vis the Middle East right now, with this undercurrent, I, I would even say it's more than an undercurrent of populism. I mean, it's it's more than half of Republicans in the House. So let's, again, I'm going to pull the lens back a little bit, because I think that there's a, there's a bigger chessboard here, and what's happening right now plays into it. We are headed for a post-Bretton Woods, post-neoliberal, post-trickle-down world. What does that mean? It means that the institutions that have sort of underpinned the global economy for the last half century are not functioning well anymore. The WTO is broken. Um, Wait, just just for this audience, so the WTO is the World Trade Organization. When you talk about Bretton Woods, this was the big conference towards the end of World War II that basically created the modern economy, the globalized system. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the let's let's put it in very simple terms. The world we've all grown up in is about to change. It is changing fundamentally. China is rising. It is not going to come seamlessly into some kind of system of Western values as we thought it would. The whole bet of the last 40 years, all all the willingness of American presidents to offshore jobs and, um, you know, create a service economy and buoy markets at the expense of trying to increase income. That was all a bet on China getting freer as it got richer. We'll okay. We'll send you all all these jobs now. We'll 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 take this bet of sort of cheap capital for more cheap stuff in Walmart, because we think ultimately China is going to be sort of you know like a Western nation. It's going to become more democratic. It's going to become freer. It's going to be part of our system. Well, guess what? No, the Chinese have their own system and it works fine for them. <laughs> I was actually struck by the contrast of the Olympic Games, where we were during the 2008 Beijing Games. And by the time the Olympics came back to China 13 years later, 
how things have sort of flipped on its head. You know, it's interesting that you point to 2008 because in some ways that was the tipping point moment for China. I think that the great financial crisis, the subprime crisis was the moment where China realized, holy heck, the U.S. doesn't have all the answers. And in fact, our our whole system, which is based on a lot of debt, a lot of use of the financial markets to kind of make people feel richer, to paper over a lot of problems. Oh, gosh, maybe we don't want to adopt that system. Um, and it was interesting because the day after Lehman Brothers fell, China started rolling out the most massive fiscal stimulus that the world has ever seen. Um, and that's when they also started pulling back on the private sector. You started slowly but surely seeing more state control. You started just seeing a kind of a you know, a resurgence of a more Chinese state-controlled economic system, which never really went away, let's be clear. But getting back to the question about Biden, the internationalist, the U.S. role in the world, et cetera, um, you know, you were getting to it in terms of the kind of the, the buildup of China. Where does the U.S. stand? You know, we, we talked post-World War II of the bipolar world, right? The U.S. and Soviet Union. And then sort of with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was this free-for-all where it was America and then sort of everywhere else. And now... We're, are we back to a bipolar world? A multi, I, what, what is the U.S. role and where does the U.S. stand right now? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I would say that you could make a case for a bipolar world or a tripolar world. What does that mean? The U.S. and China are definitely on different pages and are going to remain on different pages. The big question mark is where does the EU stand? And it was interesting. Last week, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who's president of the European Commission, came to Washington and the hope was that the U.S. and Europe were going to be able to ink this big new climate change deal and we were going to build back better altogether and we were going to create green steel and, and buy critical minerals together and make sure that China doesn't own, you know, 95 percent of the world's lithium um, and, and, and ensure the fact that we can actually have those electric vehicles and, and wind power. That didn't happen. Now, that didn't happen in part because everybody's distracted by Gaza, understandably so. But I think there's also still some bet hedging on the part of Europe. I mean, Europeans, they still cling to the old system, I think, more than the U.S. does, in part because it's easier when you're a big country, a big, um, you know, frankly, mercantilist country, you know, like China or or a big country like the U.S. that has food, fuel, and consumer demand, it's easier to kind of, you know, ring fence and and circle the wagons. It's harder when you're Europe and, you know, they don't even have their own politics together and they're fragmented and Brexit and where's the U.K. and all this. And, you know, so um, they're sort of like, gosh, we don't know. Do we want to be part of the bipolar world and go into the U.S. camp? Or maybe there's a, some tripolar world where German automakers can still sell lots of cars to China while we're cutting green steel deals with the U.S. Mm, I don't think so. But there's still hope in Brussels. So ultimately, as Americans, we need to accept the the fate that we're not the the top dog, or at least not the top dog for for much longer, that we do need to engage in a world where we're sharing and we can't get our way when it comes to everything anymore. I, I think that's right. And I think that's appropriate. I mean, you know, in some ways, I always thought that the China will become more like us as they get richer. I always thought that was a little arrogant. You know, it, it's it's I mean, gosh, we're, we're a nation that's a few centuries old. I mean, this is like a 6,000-year-old culture. They've got their own jam. <laughs> I had a um, former CIA director, Mike Morell, on a few months ago, and he was talking about a meeting he had in Beijing um, several years ago where, you know, we talk about good decades and bad decades in America, 
and his Chinese counterterrorists were talking about good millennia and bad millennia for China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good emperors, bad emperors. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. It's just, and so I think that we understandably in the kind of post-war period that the U.S. kind of, you know, owned, we lost sight of that. Now, it's funny because when you go back, I'll just wonk out for one minute. When you go back to the 1930s and the 40s, when the system, the modern system was being built, there were worries even at that point that, gosh, maybe if the U.S. is too much the linchpin of this, if the dollar becomes the only global reserve, maybe that's going to create some worrisome imbalances in the world economy. And, you know, maybe this whole, you know, buyer of last resort thing is, you know, as as the French say, the dollar is the exorbitant uh, privilege and the exorbitant burden. And you could say that about being the U.S. on the global stage. Yeah, it's great. It's also kind of hard to be the policeman of the world. It's kind of hard to underpin the world economy with your consumer power when people haven't gotten a raise in real terms, despite some a little bit of wage inflation since the 1990s. All that is a challenge. So I think a more multipolar world is going to come with with challenges. The world is not flat, you know. Sorry, Tom Friedman, it's bumpy, but it's also going to come with opportunities for us to take, you know, a more appropriately shared space. One thing we've been watching the past couple of years, especially in the past few months, is the rise of the BRICS. Uh, BRICS standing for Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, South Africa. Uh, they've been having summits. Now, they all have different agendas, Vladimir Putin and the Brazilians and the South Africans, etc. And the Indians. Don't forget about the Indians. And the Indians, some are hedging. Some want to go totally, you know, uh, you know, want to bring down America. That's Vlad. And one of the things that's coming out of those discussions is trying to create an alternative to the dollar as the uh, global currency. And I wanted to get your take, you know, as you address in your book, you know, the, the rise of, the, of, of this universe, what the rise of BRICS means. It certainly uh, struck fear. Uh, into certain Americans out there and is is weighing politically. What is the state of BRICS? How concerned should Americans be? And what does it mean for the dollar and the global economy? Yeah, so big questions. I mean, you know, you remember back 20 years ago, BRICS were the hot thing. They were the emerging markets. They're rising. This is the place to put your money. And then it kind of wasn't it wasn't a thing anymore. I mean, in the U.S. market has actually done far better in many ways than BRICS have in 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 uh, you know the last ten or twenty years. It's been all about the U.S. and U.S. tech stocks. Um, but BRICS are now back in part because China is going its own way, and it has this thing called the One Belt One Road. Uh, pathway, which is really kind of an attempt to recreate the old Silk Route, you know, stretching all the way through Asia and even Southern Europe and into Africa. Right, they're spending billions and billions of dollars in dozens of countries to help build up infrastructure and create ties for China. Exactly. And so the idea is, could the BRICS all kind of be part um, in some way of this new coalition? And, you know, certainly I think Russia is China's little buddy and is going to go where China goes. Brazil, not so sure. India, not so sure. The, the truth is that you can't speak about emerging markets as a single entity anymore. I'm not sure that you ever could. I mean, it was kind of a catch catchphrase for a while. Um, but the idea of the renminbi, the Chinese dollar, the Chinese currency, um, as being a new global currency, yeah, I think in five or 10 years, that's going to be something people will talk about more. I want to be clear, the US dollar is still by far the global reserve. I mean, I think we have over 60% of global central bank reserves in dollars right now, the vast majority of global commerce still in dollars. But frankly, 
China's doing more commodities trade in RMB. It's when it buys Russian oil, it doesn't buy it in dollars. It buys it in RMB. When it buys soy from Brazil, it buys it in RMB. So slowly but surely, you will see other currencies, mainly the RMB, come come more onto the global scene. Even though it's a state-controlled currency without much transparency, it could actually be competitive with the dollar over time. In the long term, possibly. I would say that's a very long term. That could be a 50-year long term. We're talking the end of of this century long term. End of this century. And honestly, there's a lot that can happen. I mean, you know, I'll tell you, if you'd have asked me this question pre-Xi Jinping, I would have said, yeah, the renminbi is something I'm watching. Now, with Xi really having become such a strong kind of strongman force in China, uh, you know, you're seeing censorship, you're seeing kind of uh, just muscly moves that you haven't seen in a while in China. And that that worries markets. And I think that that actually counts against the RMB, because as you say, you don't want to feel like there's an autocrat in charge of your, you know, the money that you're, you're keeping for your retirement. Yeah, I was gonna say that's always been the bet as to why China wouldn't start a war and invade Taiwan is economy overall. But that doesn't seem to be, at least based on their rhetoric and moves in recent years, it seems like that's not foolproof. A hundred percent. The last party meeting, they actually issued a formal statement saying national security concerns are now the primary concern. So that was new. It's always been economy, economy, economy. Um, that said, you know, China has been saying for some time, actually back in 2015, it issued a statement saying it wanted to be separate from U.S. technology, that it wanted to have its own supply chains. It wanted to be more of a, you know, a control of its own regional economic ecosystem. So it's not like they haven't been giving signals that they kind of wanted to go this direction. So let's talk uh, globalization, big picture. You know, you talk about how it promised a flat world opportunity. And while it has made the world wealthier, right, uh, you know, it's lifted billions out of poverty, it's created a, you know, a global middle class, a lot of that wealth has been concentrated at the very top. It's, it has, you know, as you lay it out, produced inequality, resentment, distrust in institutions. And I'd love just, you know, we, we've taken for granted this globalized system. And to the extent that you can do Cliff's notes here, because you do go in depth in the book, how did we get the system we have post-World War II? How well did it work? And where did it break down, Rana? If you could kind of give us a, a quick summary of the last 80 years. Love it. Yeah. This is like my live for this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, how did we get the system? Well, we had World War II. Well, first of all, we had World War I and World War II. And European powers thought, gosh, we really don't want to have another global war that brings us to our knees. So we're going to create a new system of commerce and trade and finance that connects business interests and the interests of global capital across borders. And from that conceit came the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and essentially this kind of globalized system of trade, the assumption of which was, hey, capital goods, people should just move wherever they want, and they're always going to land where it's best for everybody. And it's, and, you know, and if we all depend on each other economically, we're much less incentivized to go to war with each other. A hundred percent. That was always the, the primary thing. But 
The chink in this assumption, which really underpinned globalization as we know it, and and um, the outsourcing of multinationals to you know the world and jobs to China, but also a lot of cheap stuff for the rest of us, it was underpinned by this idea that capital goods and people could all travel equally fast and freely, and it, that never happened. I mean, global finance went way ahead of goods or certainly people. So you got this essentially tearing apart of the global market system, which kind of floated 35,000 feet above the nation state and the interests of voters and workers in those nation states, um, particularly in hollowed out places where the jobs went away. So in the U.S., you know, where I grew up, Indiana, the Rust Belt, um, in Europe, you know, parts of the industrial bases of France and Italy. So that's when you start getting populism. That's And, you know, this is where I could fast forward to Donald Trump, because I have always thought that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were in some ways different sides of the same coin. They were representing the discontent of a group of voters that felt that their interests were no longer being served, but rather the interests of the global marketplace was being served. Now, of course, Donald Trump being the ultimate con man, like his one thing that he got right was, hey, there's a smoky back room where elites are making deals in their own interests and you're not part of it. Of course, being who he is, instead of like cleaning up the smoky back room, he took a bunch of cigars to the White House and stunk the place up to high heaven. Um, so that's kind of where we are. I think Biden has gone a long way towards saying, hey, the old system worked really well for the rich. We need to make a new system work better for labor. I mean, he came in on the mantra of work, not wealth. Mm -hmm. And pretty mm -hmm. much all of the policies since then have been pro-union, pro-labor, pro-competition, which is, you know, the antitrust suits that we're seeing. It's all about kind of trying to tampen down the real runaway power of global corporations and lift up the, the power of workers in the nation state. But what's interesting, and you talk about this in the book, is, you know, Trump may have been flawed in the way he described it, but he, you know, he was, you know, he basically called out the China assumption that had existed for a long time, or yes. he called the Kabuki theater of it. Um, and also, you know, gave voice, albeit again flawed, to uh, the concerns of workers. You know, I, I remember in covering the 2016 election, the moment where Hillary Clinton uh, had to backtrack on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So this is a big, yeah. the latest. And to me, I was like, oh, wow. Like the biggest advocates for globalization now realize that the country has turned against it. Absolutely. I mean, I remember watching the very first Trump-Hillary debate and the minute that trade came up, the minute that NAFTA came up, I thought, oh, God, oh, God, she lost it. You know, she's because there was such a true felt experience that was being um, amazingly encapsulated by the most elite globalist financialist of all time, Donald Trump. Right, but he had his finger on the pulse of a, a great portion of voters. Well, he has anim he, he has lizard, he has lizard instincts. I would say though, you know, in terms of who we're going to give policy credit to, we got to give it to Bob Lighthizer, who was the USTR under Trump and had also worked in trade for many, many, many decades, you know, most particularly under Reagan. Mm -hmm. And I think had been sounding the alarm for a long time about, you know, this China thing is not going to work out like we'd hoped. People are getting left behind. Yeah, people yeah. are getting left behind. And um, we actually do have politics that still functions at the level of the nation state. And we can't be making global deals if they don't work for people in Pennsylvania and Ohio. So we did a recap here as a globalization. We have the system post-World War II, the most disruptive you know, war in modern you know, global history. We have this assumption. It works for several decades, albeit flawed. 
but works. There's a realization in the early 21st century that, you know, there's this, you know, huge divide that it's created. Yeah, I think what I would actually pick up and say, you could start to see the tide turn um, for in the battle in Seattle. Remember that in 1999, I think it was. When you start to see this massive protest at, at, at World Bank meetings, IMF meetings. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You started seeing a lot of like, wait a minute, is global trade working for us? Why is inequality rising? And then interestingly, you go through a period of really unprecedented global growth. So the highest level of global growth in history was between 2003 and 2007. So a lot was kind of, you know, getting papered over by easy money, but then boom, financial crisis happens. And then everybody, oh, there's a wake up call again. And then you get Occupy and you get Thomas Piketty, you know, the French uh, economist writing Capital in the 21st Century and saying, you know what, inequality is naturally rising in lieu of government safeguards um, and, you know, public support like we had, say, during the FDR time period. But you also get more easy money. You know, you get the Fed coming in and lowering interest rates and, and doing um, what's called quantitative easing, which is essentially helicoptering money into the economy, which makes asset prices go up which is why stocks went up and also why home prices are totally unaffordable. Right. We lived through this decade uh, post uh, economic crash where, you know, interest rates were basically zero for 10 years. Right. And so so again, you get a kind of an almost reckoning, but then you get a papering over of the problem with easy money. But then COVID hits and COVID hits, the war in Ukraine hits. And then I think what happened was supply chains became kind of where the rubber meets the road, where there was a felt experience like, oh my God, I can't get stuff in the supermarket. Like I can't get PPE. We can't make basic pharmaceuticals. We're getting 95% of our drug inputs from China, which, you know, understandably in the middle of a pandemic, wanted its mask, three cent masks back. So yeah. suddenly Americans had to figure out how to make masks again. And that was a kind of, oh, wait a minute, maybe our economy has become too much about Wall Street and we need to make it a little more about Main Street. How is the U.S. unique when it comes to developed countries here uh, and the impact globalization has had? Because, you know, we have seen the rise of this populism, certainly in the U.K. with Brexit. Uh, you know, we have seen the elections in France, elections in Eastern Europe, the election of the prime minister in Italy. Are there, you know, certain things that you can paint with, a uh, you know, kind of a, a wide brush, but certain things that are unique to America here? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think the underlying trend of populism in developed countries kind of comes roughly from the same place, which is a sense of a left behind class of working people. I guess in the US, one thing that's different and concerning, frankly, is um, the level of asset price inflation and the level particularly of housing inflation has just been wild. You know, it's been disproportionate. Um, it's really created a cost of living crisis. I think also the lack of a social safety net. I mean, we, we yeah, have- that's that's significant. You know, the 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 fact that we don't have that. We had it briefly during COVID a social safety net. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, the U.S. is doing better than its peers. The Fed, um, just New York Fed, came out with a report saying the difference between the U.S. and everybody else right now was that fiscal stimulus and was that sense that Biden didn't bail out banks. He sent checks to people who were unemployed. So there's multiple rounds. There were two rounds from Trump, I think, and that round from Biden when he came in. Yeah, yeah, there were. Um, but I mean, I would add to that, I should be fair and say it wasn't just the sending checks to people. It was also the passing of the infrastructure bills, the CHIPS Act, the kind of flood of money, which has created a lot of jobs in the construction sector. It's starting to create jobs in the manufacturing sector. I mean, there is this big fiscal tailwind that the U.S. have had and has that Europe didn't have. It's had a negative impact when it comes to inflation, but it's, it's had positives 
in terms of other aspects of the economy. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. And I, you know, again, I think I think about the global economy throughout history, really throughout millennia, kind of like a pendulum, and systems are kind of purpose built for their time. You know, like mercantilism kind of worked in the 18th century, and then. Eventually, it gave way to laissez-faire. And then when that was too much and we had a Great Depression, you got Keynesianism and more government support. And then eventually, when there was sort of too much government support and red tape, you get the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. And now I think most of us can feel (laughs) we've kind of come to the end of trickle-down economics. It just hasn't really trickled down. And and it's time for something else. So. When we look at the historical aspect of this, you talk about this new era of localization, that this idea of deglobalization is welcome. It's not necessarily a bad thing. At the same time, when you look at, you know, the previous era, you know, is it a coincidence that we then had a massive world war coming out of, you know, previous eras where everyone kind of put up trade barriers, put up other barriers. We're like, we're going to focus on ourselves, which is understandable. But, you know, is there a correlation there between, well, countries do that and then suddenly major wars break up. Yes. And, and how do we pre- and, and sorry, Ron, I'll add this to it. How do we prevent that from happening this time around as we deglobalize to a certain extent? Yeah, no, it's a, th- these are great questions. Um let me go back a little bit before I answer the really big questions about wars and hot wars. If you go back 10, 15, 20 years, you were already starting to see a certain amount of regionalization because, you know, China did get richer, wages went up. And so the whole arbitrage of let's send jobs far away and then ship really cheap goods back for months in in boats using a lot of carbon emissions and you know expensive fuel, that math was no longer working in a lot of industries. So you were starting to see uh, low margin things like clothing, furniture start to become more regional. You remember the rise of Zara, the Spanish clothing brand uh-huh. and kind of fast fashion? That was all predicated on the idea that, oh gosh, it's actually cheaper to make things in Eastern Europe and ship them to Western Europe than it is to make them in China and ship them to Europe and the US. And so we started to see some of that happening. And then I think there was during COVID a realization that, oh my gosh, maybe it's not such a good idea to have 92% of all the world's um, semiconductors that we need to power like everything in one tiny island in the South China Seas. Like maybe that's not a good idea for anybody. So we started seeing that sort of amount of regionalization, which I think is a good thing. You then start to say, hey, we need a clean energy transition. We need stuff, cheap stuff, not just from China, but we need stuff in the US. We need stuff in Europe. So let's, let's subsidize the hell out of this in all regions. So these are kind of, I think, benign shifts towards regionalization. Now, what you're getting at and what you're starting to see with the war in Israel, war in Ukraine is, okay, at what point do we get that kind of spark like you did in World War I, where there's a single event that sets off a global geopolitical event, and we don't yet have the new structures in place. I think the Biden administration has gone farther than anyone could have imagined at trying to articulate a new paradigm. I mean, Jake in his speech last April said, look, economic growth alone, GDP growth, that's not good enough. That's great. Sure. We've gotten wealthier. We've also gotten a warming planet and wild inequality that is undermining liberal democracy. So we need to have a little bit of a rethink. We need to have 
growth, but with higher labor standards and better environmental standards. And we have to figure out how to bring everybody along with that. Now, that's a complicated, wonky process. But if we can get it right, I think we'll end up in a better place. You raise an important question, though, which is when there are paradigm shifts, it's almost like tectonic plates, right? When these things move, they cause rifts. And I think that it, those things are very hard to, to avoid. There's the old adage from Mark Twain, right? That history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. You know, and you see like, you know, there was a huge shift in the 1920s in America about like, oh, we're letting in too many immigrants. Like, you know, we need to focus on ourselves. So you, you do see these parallels and you're like, oof, you know, that feels a little icky here. And, you know, people have sort of seen the balloon pop on America with Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, pick your moment. I mean, it could be, it could be that there is simply a truism, you know, that when there are big geopolitical shifts that you get conflict. I mean, that could be the case. It could be that we are going to live through some years of that before we get to a new paradigm that is hopefully helps to rebalance some of the ills of the old paradigm, namely a warming planet and mass inequality. I am still hopeful. I am still hopeful that particularly with the leadership we have in the White House right now, that there are ways that this could be managed so that we could have a soft landing, let's say, into a post-neoliberal world as opposed to a hard one. I, I do still hold out hope for that. Wait, uh, define neoliberal for the people unfamiliar with that term. Oh, sure. Yeah, God, sorry. I'm throwing around these wonky terms. Um, So neoliberal, I'll, I'll define it the way the IMF does, which is it's that idea that capital goods people should all sort of flow freely with no national boundaries or rules and that they'll all end up where it's most productive for everybody and all boats will rise. Unfortunately, Wall Street rose a lot faster and a lot further than Main Street did. And so you get global wealth, but you get mass inequality within countries. So, you know, we see a lot of these global institutions that were created, were functional for a while, have become less functional. I mean, I, every time I drive by the UN here in New York, I'm just like, that place, like, oh. What's the deal? What's the deal with them? I will say, you know, you in the book kind of discuss, you know, like, here are ways we can get to this new world. Yeah, it does seem like more business gets done now at the, you know, at the G7 than yeah, many yeah, places. Yeah. China has its bricks and certain institutions that existed for a long time, you know, have sort of fallen on, on hard time. So what institutions either need to be built or reformed for this new global landscape? So, you know, I think you're getting at something important with G7. Well, think about seven versus how many countries are in the UN now, like 128 or something like that? In the like UN, that. I, mean, I think you know, we're it's, like 193. It's like, uh, Okay, yeah. so yeah, I mean, like seven V that, I mean, even the G20 is, that's that's tough, you know? Um, the OECD has become tough, even though that's kind of a club, supposedly right, a club of like- Organization for European Cooperation and Development. Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is basically a club of developed nations. Yes. So these are countries that have gotten rich enough that they can now be part of this club. And so that should argue for like with like. And I think the OECD is still, I, I hold out some hope for the OECD as a place where you can have some interesting conversations and get stuff done. I think the WTO is fundamentally broken. I think it's not working. You heard Catherine Tai actually a couple of weeks ago say, the US trade representative say, it is broken. It is not working, um, which I think is progress, actually. We need to kind of acknowledge these things. But acknowledge uh, that things are broken before you can fix it. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, and this is something that irritates me about the Europeans, actually, is that they 
I you know, listen, I worked in in Europe for 10 years and I was in Brussels and like God bless them, you know, they're they're trying to do business in like 27 languages <laughs> and make peace across a lot of different borders and it's, you know, it's it's a great effort, but there's also a technocracy that takes hold and there's this sense of following the letter of the law without actually moving forward, you know, in a in a sort of a uh, towards progress. And I think that you can look at what the U.S. has done in the last few years and say, you know what, we ha- need to have a war on climate change. Like we need to subsidize, not just try and come up with some very complicated carbon emissions trading mechanism, you know, that we, we need to we need to take some serious steps in the real world. I think that's where the U.S. still exerts some um, great leadership. I think what's happening right now is that you've got US and China kind of in a race to see who can scoop up the rest of the nations in in their own blocks, in their own trading blocks, in their own foreign policy blocks. So this is sort of a repeat of the US and Soviet Union 70 years ago. Well, d- yes, in, a way. in the sense that it's bipolar, but boy, China's a whole different animal. I mean, they they are at technology equal or near equal. They're larger, they may be bigger at some stage now. You can also argue, just to be pessimistic for a minute, China is having a demographic issue. Um, it's having a debt crisis that dwarfs, in some ways, what happened in 2007, 2008 in the U.S., um, 2009. Uh, so there's a lot going on in China that could go pear-shaped. And you know maybe, maybe they won't be. Uh, they won't catch up with the U.S. That's all possible. But I think China and Russia are two different species of adversary. And China is much more significant. So in terms of what needs to be done now, you know, we have an election next year. Our politics in this country are broken. The world is distracted, as is pretty typical every couple of years by the Middle East. <laughs> the Middle East seems to always uh, distract us from larger I issues. I know, it's true. We try to make a pivot to Asia, and we never do. We, we never do, because something always pops up in the Middle East. And uh, we're very kind of ADHD as a, as a globe. <laughs> we're always kind of jumping on the latest thing and dealing with the crisis of the moment. So what needs to happen? And, and I'm interested in whether climate change can serve as that sort of incentive. You know, is that an opportunity for the world to get together or build institutions? I think so. You know, if you look at where the low hanging fruit is, even for the U.S. and China to work together, it's clearly climate. You know, I'm, and the U.S., Europe and China are all moving forward in their own ways to a clean transition. You know, China has put out a lot of cheap EVs. Um, the Europe has its carbon trading. The U.S. now has its clean industrial strategy, the inflation, oddly named Inflation and Reduction Act, because it's actually going to be mildly inflationary in the <laughs> short term. But <laughs> but what of that? <laughs> it, it was, I mean, it's a huge bill. We discussed it previously on this podcast. And I guess at the time, that seemed like a good name, but it, it does a lot of other things that probably would be more relevant descriptions for the for the act. Yeah, this is basically the U.S. getting back to something called industrial policy, which is uh, the government saying, you know what, the markets don't always know best and we need to tweak them a little bit. I mean, we gave the markets 40 years to try and figure out climate change. They didn't. And so now government, we're going to play a little bit of a role here. Before we um, conclude here, one area you get into, which I find fascinating, and I know that uh, listeners do, is the food industry. Oh, yeah. Big agriculture. You talk about, uh, you know, it's it's something we've discussed recently on the podcast when it came to Campbell Soups buying Rayos on a kind of small level. But uh, recently there was a headline about how Clorox had a cyber hack. And, you know, they were saying there's going to be a supply shortage of certain Clorox products, including Hidden Valley Ranch dressing. People are like, wait, Clorox makes Hidden Valley oh, Ranch no. dressing? Yeah, right. 
and, and it speaks to kind of, you know, I was struck by some of the numbers. I'd love for you to go through them just in terms of how few companies basically control the global food supply and what it says about where we're at. Oh my God. It's incredible. Actually, it's interesting because I, I just wrote a column a few days ago. Um, there was a new UN study looking at how six, essentially six companies control the global food industry. Uh, almost all aspects of it. And they are one of the reasons that we have the level of food inflation that we do, because they they have so many choke points that they can use to control supply, to jack up prices. Now, Wait, so 9 billion people on earth, six companies control food. That's it. Wow. That's it. I know. It's it's dystopian. I actually just read a really interesting sci-fi book called The Wind-Up Girl, which is it's it's about a world in which calorie men, which are essentially CEOs of food companies, run the world. And I'm like, wait, we're in that world. <laughs> this isn't sci-fi. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's I think we all got a little bit of a taste of this in the pandemic because, OK, so economy shuts down, restaurants are empty, but there's lines in front of grocery stores. Basic Economics 101 says that shouldn't happen, that that supply and demand should work itself out. But because each of those supply chains are so siloed and controlled by just one or two or maybe three at the tops number of firms that don't talk to one another, these things don't get worked out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, it's one of the reasons we have food inflation. It's one of the reasons that we have uh, supply chain vulnerabilities in in really basic products. And so I think that you're going to start to see more talk I would bet in the next few years of strategic reserves of, of foodstuffs. Right. We always talk about oil strategic reserve, but maybe the yeah. government needs to keep a reserve of milk or eggs or wheat. Yeah, I think, you know, or, or you know, uh, critical minerals that are important for semiconductors or the clean trend. I, I think there's going to be a lot more of that kind of, you know, at, at, at its worst, perhaps resource nationalism, but at its best, you could imagine kind of shared purchasing agreements by countries to just make sure that there's enough stuff in case of emergency. I mean, we do that with oil. We should probably do it with food. Is there anything to do about these six companies? Or I mean, is there any talk of, um, you know, regulatory action to break them apart? Well, you know, we we there was a provision in the Dodd-Frank Act to regulate them and, and actually you know, make them start acting more and reporting more like companies instead of just financial entities, meaning that they would have to actually report more. They'd have to show uh, show us their positions. That like, Frank was a, a, a law passed out of the financial uh, crisis of 08. That's right. And unfortunately, I mean, it was a great bill, but it was trying to do a lot. And some of the stuff got left on the sidewalk. And that was one of the things that did. There is talk now about trying to resuscitate some of this. Frankly, though, in an election year, I don't think you're going to see Really well, we don't have a speaker serious. of the House. What are we? Uh, we're going to get to <laughs> regulatory action against food lobbyists <laughs> who have, you know, hundreds of of uh, lobbyists on Capitol Hill who, you know, their job is to make sure nothing changes uh, in a Congress that passes very few things. Um, one of the foods you bring up there, you talk about corn, also from Indiana. By the way, I'm from Illinois originally, so oh, another okay. Midwesterner who, you know, grew up with, you know, passing by huge fields of soybeans and and corn, absolutely, et and that's all for cows. It's all for. I mean, right. so what, much what, of it is. What are the numbers there? Oh, gosh. Oh, I think something like 80 plus percent of the corn in America is for cattle. I mean, it's just a stunning subsidy for the very food that is warming the planet. You know, it's it's really a, a system that is in desperate need of change. And meanwhile, we only produce 25 percent of all the healthy calories that we need in this country. And we're one of the top growing countries, you know, even in California, they only have a quarter of the fruits and vegetables that they need. 
Yeah, you talk about how our broken economic system has sort of led to our broken health system. One story you bring up, you bring up iceberg lettuce as an example of what it says about our food system. Yeah, yeah. Well, iceberg lettuce is one of those things that exists only because it can be transported for six months in a in a truck and still like be edible. But it, it, and nobody really wants to eat it. I mean, it's a vehicle no. for for blue cheese, I think. But <laughs> um, but but because it can be transported. It exists, but think about the economics of that. Iceberg lettuce is mainly water. So while you're carting this stuff across the country because you can, it's evaporating and losing about you know half of its weight. So all those emissions, all that fuel to transport something that we do just kind of because it's the one thing that will stay good for six months, you know, when you're toting it around. I mean, how about just more local farming? How about more community supported agriculture? Right. You talk about vertical farming as a solution here. Explain how that would work. Well, I think, you know, there's not one silver bullet to fix the farm problems, but vertical farming is one of many things. Um, This is a high tech technique where you actually grow with very um, highly precise uh, ways of controlling light and water, you can grow plants up the side of buildings. And, you know, you see this, I actually just came back from Singapore. They do tons of it there. And it's one of the ways that they actually try to do climate control as well, because when you're growing, it can be an insulation and cooling device, you know, to have- In Singapore, where you have to be very efficient with your space, given how small that place 100%, is. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So, so, you know, we do this in, in this country um, at Google. If you've ever been to the Google campus, all the, the fruits and vegetables are vertically farmed up the, up the sides of buildings. And so this is just one high tech technique that could allow a lot to be done locally. I mean, Walmart is, is doing mass vertical farming now, um, a uh, number of grocery chains in, in the U S. So, you know, there's just a lot of potential right now for local, I think. We're going to end there. Rana, thank you for chatting, going global, going historical, talking latest crisis. The book is Homecoming. We will link to it in the show notes. You can get it wherever you get your books. And congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I want to thank Rana Faruhar again for that great conversation. We could have gone on for hours on all things global crises and globalization. You can buy her book, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World, wherever you get your books. We have a link uh, in the show notes as well. As we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one, extra content over on our members-only Instagram feed, uh, where I take your questions, do deep dives on a variety of subjects. We also have a weekly news quiz over there, so you should check that out over at mo.news slash premium. Support our independent journalism for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual subscription. Again, mo.news slash premium. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon.